1 Kings chapter 9, beginning verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you do turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name, and I will cast out of my sight, and cast out of, for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers up out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster upon them. That is the word of God, 1 Kings 9, 1 through 9. Wouldn't it be nice to have an interpretation for how God chooses to respond to your prayers? You spend time in prayer with God, and suddenly, maybe the next day, maybe that night, I don't know, you get an audio file that explains. God says, well, here's what I heard you say, and here's what I did in response, and here's why. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? To have this automatic explanation for what God did about your plea to him. That's what Solomon gets in 1 Kings chapter 9. It's like, for those of you on Medicare, and actually I think all insurance works this way, it's called an explanation of benefit. That when you use that insurance for some kind of treatment or test or whatever, you will receive in the mail this explanation. This is what we covered and here's why. And here's what it falls under. And here's what we didn't cover and here's why. Solomon, that last chapter, chapter 8, made this amazing prayer. It's a prayer for future prayer. It's a prayer that God will always hear the prayers of Israel and he will respond properly to those prayers. It was bold because he was just urging God to continue being their great warrior for them. Everyone was joyful. So I think, I think this prayer was made in sincerity. And you wonder, what did God think about it? Well, it didn't take long. His second appearance, there's three that Solomon will receive. You may recall the first one when God says, ask me for anything you want. And he says, give me wisdom. You remember that? So that was a good interaction. This time after that prayer and that dedication, everybody goes home with great joy. It wasn't long after that till God came to Solomon and said, let me give you an explanation of benefit for that prayer you made. And God not only says, yes. He says it emphatically, yes, I heard your plea. Yes, I accept this house as a place for my name to reside. Yes, my ears. What he's saying is, I heard you. I will always hear you. My ears and my heart will be there for all time. How do you like that? That's called an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have ears, but he uses language that relates to us and he says I want you to know I hear every single thing and I'll give I'll I'll give my utmost undivided attention to my people Israel but some people might think this is like this next screen you know what this is 
a blank check. Now, for those of you young people, they used to give these out to you when you got a, an account open at a bank, and they would give you, and then you'd have to buy your own after that. It's called a check. You guys could think of a debit card maybe like that. But it's a blank check, and a lot of people think that the, the promises of God, the covenants of God, are like a blank check. It's whatever I need, he provides. And in fact, young people have misinterpreted God. They call it, uh, athe- they call it moral deism today. It's like when I get in trouble and I call upon God, he'll help me. That, and that's kind of the extent of their relationship with God. He just helps me have a good day, right? It's like an, oh, it's, it's a blank check. Anything I need, God gives. And so it doesn't matter what I do, that blank check, that get out of jail free, that no consequence of any of my actions, free, blank check. That creates a lot of problems for people. And there are people that walk away from the faith because of this. Something happens in their life that they think God promised he would never allow to happen, and it happens, and they get disgruntled with God, thinking that God didn't keep his promise when it was a promise God never made. It's never been said. Now, there might be some TV preachers that say this kind of thing. You turn your life over to God, and everything just straightens out. And sometimes, this is one of my criticisms of some of those movies, those church-based movies you'll watch every that once the, once the football coach gave his life to God, well, he, his, his wife had a child, and he got a new truck, and he got a good job and everything. And that, that gives you the image that this is what God promises. That old country song, and I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. That's really true about God. He doesn't make this. So what God does is he's very emphatic in this chapter. So when you find that wonderful house, this is the other side of the American dream. And young people, listen to this. I love the vehicles people drive. They're beautiful. They're big old powerful things, right? They're beautiful. And the houses that you can get, man, there's some beautiful houses. You can dream about the houses you can live. Can I tell you something? You pay for those. Some of those houses I pass by, Melissa and I will look, that's beautiful. I'd love that house, but I don't want to have to pay for it. And pass that vehicle on the road, love that truck, but I just don't want to have to pay for it. Because there's two sides to everything. While it's nice to have those things, the thing is, what it costs you in money and time is enormous. Those houses, they are nice, but they have a tendency to spring leaks and create troubles of maintenance. And, it, and you're investing time, and instead of running around with friends and stuff, you're having to go home and fix that sewer line, right? Terry and Randy had to dig under their house one time. Those are things that have to, that's all part of the whole deal. The home ownership thing that they used to talk about in all state of the unions. Everybody should have their own home. No, not everybody should. Some people should rent a, rent a property and then call somebody else to fix it, right? That's what you should do for some. God says, I will live here. But you're going to pay rent. I don't like this, but here's what God says, right? Here's the stipulations. First, he comes at it positively. You have to walk before me with integrity of heart and uprightness, which is the same as saying the second thing, do according to all that I've commanded you, which is the same as saying the third thing, keeping my statutes and my rules. He is so repetitive. Why does he say it three times? The same reason your parents had to tell you three times. Same reason. Because he knows they're not going to hear it right. So let me say it this way. 
and then let me say it this way, and then let me say it this way, because you're still not going to hear it, and I'm going to hear you saying I said this when I didn't. Then, in case you missed it, he does the negative side. It's not unconditional. Here's the negative side. But if you turn aside from following me, which is the same as saying, if you don't keep my commandments and my statutes, which is the same as saying, if you go and serve other gods and worship them. If you do this, I'm out of here. I love the fact that God will reside within us, but God has a residential agreement with us about some conditions. It's a conditional covenant, and most covenants from God were. There are a few that weren't. One of them is the rainbow in the sky. It doesn't really matter what any of us do. It doesn't matter how any human being lives. God will never flood the earth like that again. That's unconditional, but very few unconditional. And so we talk about God's unconditional love for us. That's true. He will love us, but that doesn't mean that the way we treat him won't have conditions for us. That's not the same thing. He'll cast them off in the land of Israel. He'll cast them out of the house they've built. They will become, as it says in here, a byword. This is a strange thing. Why would people hiss? Have you ever gone by anything and went, hiss? I don't know what that means. Here's what we do. Right? So here's the temple. It's grand. Everybody talks about Solomon's temple being really grand. And eventually it is going to be destroyed. And the people walking by will go, what a shame. How can such a grand thing like that be ruined like this? And then somebody will interpret for them. They'll put on those, like you go to those uh, museums and stuff, they put the headphones on and they interpret everything for you. And it said, well, here's what happened. This is a sign of what happens when God does a lot for you and then you disregard him. That's how life ends up, just like that. And you go, what a shame. That's what the temple would become. At first, it's, wow, it's as grand as God is. And then at the end, it's, mm, God is powerful, and he gets rid of people, doesn't he, when he needs to. Either way, God's going to get his glory out of this temple. So their covenant was conditional. Aren't you glad the new covenant is unconditional? Aren't you glad that when Jesus came and brought grace and truth, he gave us unconditional election? A good Calvinist would say amen right here. Aren't you glad? But that's not the truth either, is it? We have a conditional covenant as well. It's just as grand the blessings God gives us, but there are some conditions, and the clearest way to see this, when, they, when, when that text said, you know, you'll pass by, and you'll, that's a shame, that reminds me of something Jesus says uh, in a section of Scripture in Luke chapter 14 that was read earlier. And I want you just to remember what he said because uh, he says, uh, if, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Guys, that is about as conditional as I can think, right? Jesus says there is a relational cost to our covenant. If you choose to serve God and bow your knee and make him Lord of your life, it will upturn some of your relationships. And I'm not going to apologize, Jesus says. It's got to do this. Some of the relationships of your life will change forever if you take seriously my residence in your life. 
Is that true for anybody in here? Then he says, if you don't bear your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. There is a sacrificial cost to the covenant. If you're going to honor the covenant that God has made with you, you're going to bear some burdens that are not pleasant, and you have no choice about that. And he's, he leaves that kind of open because we don't know what that cross is. For every person, the cross looks a little different. There's some, there's some things that you pay that other people don't. But you can't have the covenant without a cross. That's called a condition. And this is the one that makes me think of that sound that... My parents said that to me all the time, and I just can't stand that sound, right? Which of you wants to build a tower and doesn't first sit down and say, do I have the money to build it? Otherwise, you will build this grand foundation in this first little bit, run out of money, and it will sit there, and everybody's going to pass by and go... What a neat idea he had. Too bad he couldn't see it through. You ever go through a town, a guy had a grand vision about what he's going to do with this subdivision or this business over here, and he started building and he ran out of money. There's this parking lot just past our turnoff on 49 at Old Bridger Road, and there was going to be a big movie theater there. They put the, the chat out there, they put the big lights out there, and it said, come in this summer. We've been waiting for six years and nothing's happened. And then they built one back over here, and now there's no reason, and now it's for sale. I have a feeling dude ran out of money and didn't think about this, right? And it kind of makes you look, you know what I think every time I drive by there? What a shame. You know what this means? There is a financial cost to the covenant. If you sign on tonight, and I'm making a sale, believe it or not, this is a sales pitch for you to letting God take up residence in your life. I am trying to get you to let God move in. I want you to let God move in, but I'm not going to just try to, I'm not going to try to tell you at any cost whatsoever. I'm just not going to try to slip him in there, and then later on you say, well, you never told me. I want you to know there's going to be a cost to this. There's going to be a relational cost. There's going to be this, there's going to be this enormous kind of sacrificial cost. There's going to be a financial cost. For how many in here has becoming a Christian cost you something financially? Raise your hand. If you didn't raise your hand, you're not a real believer. It's got to cost. Yeah, you better raise your hand. Let's, let's reconsider. Okay, let's try this again. It's got to cost you. And there's one other one. A king going out to attack another king in war He's going to sit down first and say, do I have the manpower to take this? Now, this is a weird story. I don't even know how to apply this completely. It's a lot like the tower, but I think here's what he's saying. There's an oppositional cost that you will confront. You will be opposed by people and things and circumstances in your life, and you're going to have to toe the, the line with God's covenant and be opposed in different settings are you man or woman enough to honor the covenant even when those oppositions come? If you're not, then keep your seat and don't come forward. Maybe the real thing we should have about people who want to be baptized is if I can talk you out of it, you don't need to do it. 
I can talk you out of it, if I can tell you all the, all the things that you should do, and you go, I don't know, I'm willing. Well, if you don't know if you're willing, then keep your seat. Don't, don't move God in, because God's not going to come in at just any cost at all. And Jesus wraps up by saying the same thing as he says in 1 Kings 9. Therefore, if anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Paul then goes on to add, here's one other little tidbit I was saying here. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is saying, you guys are acting sexually inappropriate in your Christian lives. And he says, uh, he says something that's kind of strange to us. We wouldn't say it this way. You guys can't do that. And here's why. Not because there's a verse. Not because Jesus says don't do it, although God, Jesus definitely did. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know who's living in you? Do you know who's living there? God's living there. You can't do this. It almost should be something inside of you that's so, it's kind of like a magnet with the wrong end. You know if you put it to the two right and they, they attach, but when you try to connect two of them, they are there's something about sexual immorality and the, and the God lived in person that is so repulsive that if you tried it, it would shoot, shoot the other way. That's kind of how it is. God's living in you. There's no way you can do that. And you know what? We should have to say that to ourselves several times. You go to supermarket and you think, man, I could just steal this candy bar right here, right? Something inside of you says, no, I can't do that. God's living right here. That, that, that can't happen. You're not your own. We can talk about it politically, but for a Christian woman saying, my body is my own, is not true. Uh, You've got to couch it differently in the political realm, but in the church? When somebody says that, I want to say, <coughs> no, you're not. You're not your own. So, since you were bought at a price and God moved in and God purchased you and he moved in, you have to honor God with that body, right? So, it is an honor to have our God living within us, guiding us, but um, that doesn't mean that anything goes, obviously. It doesn't mean nothing changes. Things change. And there's two or three things I'd say just real quickly as we quickly quick say this. is he will, he will move in. God's view that he will move in if you permit him to make changes. Yes, that adage I hear all the time, he accepts you just the way you are, just as I am. Yes, he will. But when he moves in, you are no longer just as you were. No more. He will put up with a lot when he does move in. And he promises to always accept your repentance as legitimate if it's legitimate and honest and you flub up, and we all do, he is a live-in, real-time forgiver of sins upon repentance, always. You know, there's this old adage, God can't live with sin. That's not true. That's never been true. God's always lived with his people and put up with some sin, and he's always been near it. God is not like, well, I can't touch that. No, he can get real involved in it. And he lives in your life, and he, he, but he's repulsed by that sin. If ever you make a peace treaty with your sin, God will move out. And finally, if you ever choose after you've asked him to move in, if you ever choose to reject him, he will get glory out of you anyway. You remember that torn up temple? 
and it looks sad and destructed and all these, land, these not one rock left on another. You remember, that's terrible. But even then, they were talking about God. That's what happens when God's in your life and then you ignore him. So a believer who chooses after letting God move into their lives and take over, once they do that and then they turn away from God and, they're, and God just uses you anyway for his glory some way, positive or negative. And I'm saying to you, if God's going to be glorified through you regardless of what you do, you might as well agree and participate and receive the benefits for it. You might as well let him get glory and you receive a blessing for it. By having him live in you, guide you, and then take you home one of these days. So here's another chance. God's wanting to move in. Move out into the world one soul at a time. He's wanting to move in to other people. And if there's anyone here who up to this time you've not let God move in, I'm making one more appeal. Sign the residential agreement. Let him in and let him bless your life. Just remember, there are conditions. And you need to agree to them. But can I tell you, you always get the best end of the deal. You always do. You'll never pay more than it's worth. If there's anyone who needs to respond, make it known as we stand and sing the invitation song.